Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and promote public education. And uh, you might remember, if you were listening to us last week, that we were talking about the National School Reform Agreement Ministerial Reference Group. What a mouthful. It's just that time, again, when things have become so ridiculously unequal in Australian education that the government of the day feels that it has to have an inquiry. And we don't expect as much from this inquiry as you got from the robo-debt one. It goes back to Mr Carmel and then the Gonski report, and now we're going to have the Jason Clear report, I suppose. But when you have these reports, you've got to understand that they reflect the terms of reference. And it's what the terms of reference don't have in them, which is often the key to a lot of the problems which have bedeviled Australian education since the 1960s. So in our press release 988, the dogs have something to say about this current attempt to deal with the gross inequities which have bedeviled Australian education for the last 70 years, not just the last 20 years, although they've got a lot worse, and our reasons for it. And, of course, you might not be surprised to find that the terms of reference are very unlikely to get to the root cause. What the reference group is going to do is to look at the results rather than the cause of the gross inequities in Australian education. But um, Oliver's going to lead us off with what the dogs wish to submit to this reference group. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. This is our most recent press release, the submission to the National School Reform Agreement Ministerial Reference Group. The National School Reform Agreement is a joint agreement between the Commonwealth, states and territories to lift student outcomes across Australian schools. Initiated in 2013, in the last decade, it has proved a dismal failure. On international standards, educational outcomes from our Australian schools have declined, and the levels of inequity between both the educational institutions and social groups have increased. Our unequal education systems are producing a class-based oligarchic as opposed to a democratic society. Dogs consider that this is largely because of the failure of the state aid to private schools experiment commenced in 1964, and the return to the much discredited denominational system of the 18th and 19th centuries. This return to the failures of the past has been exacerbated by the neoliberal economic paradigm with its privatisation of public facilities agenda espoused by both the Labour and coalition governments since the 1980s. Yet all government inquiries established to solve the educational equity problem since the Carmel Committee of 1973 have, including the present case, through their terms of reference, been discouraged from confronting the underlying funding issues. Inequity necessarily accompanies public subsidisation of powerful private religious bureaucracies, along with the financial and political entanglement of religion with the state. <clears throat> Such policies have continued to bedevil all attempts to ameliorate educational inequity and have led to the current educational crisis. The current terms of reference of the National School Reform Agreement Ministerial Reference Group are no exception. They address the results rather than the cause of current crises in Australian education, namely the public funding of irresponsible private religious bureaucracies. The only term of reference which mentions funding assumes the continuation of funding a dual system of education and is only concerned with accountability and transparency issues. And even then, the only funding amounts considered are the 20 plus billion dollars in direct federal and state grants to private religious schools, not the billions in tax exemptions enjoyed by private but not public institutions. <clears throat> this term of reference also assumes that public accountability, transparency for public funding of private education bureaucracies and their schools is a possibility. It has not proved to be so for the past seven decades. There is no likelihood of it ever being the case 
when public funds are given to powerful private religious interest groups. Only public funding of public schools administered by a public administration answerable to parliament can guarantee public accountability and transparency. Moreover, any policy espousing equality of opportunity is doomed to failure, while there is public funding of a dual system of schools with diametrically opposed objectives. The public system is public in purpose and outcome, above all, public in access to children and employees, public in ownership and control, and publicly funded and accountable. The private system, on the other hand, is private in purpose and outcome, selects children on the basis of class, creed, or even color, is privately owned and controlled and accountable to its private clientele. It espouses a philosophy of choice for those who can afford it and an extreme market ideology, which plays havoc with the opportunities of vulnerable families and children. Yet this long outdated sectarian system has been publicly funded generously and at the expense of the public system for the last seven decades. It follows, as night follows day, that we are confronted in Australia with growing inequality, sectarian divisions, duplication of facilities, a mushrooming education bill, and declining international standards. The dogs argue that the real cause of the current crisis is the public funding of private schools themselves. This has reached a crucial tipping point, a return to the 1860s when it looked as if the denominational system would undermine the public system to a point of terminal decline. Our forefathers had the temerity to confront and withdraw funding from the denominational system, but our current leaders do not even have the intestinal fortitude to recognize it as a problem. But a fundamental problem it certainly is. The Australian Education Union, in a recent press release entitled Damning Evidence of Massive Private School Overfunding, described the gross inequities in the current funding system. The full extent of the inequity in Australia's school funding system has been exposed, with internal Department of Education figures showing a massive overfunding of private schools. The figures are included in a departmental briefing prepared for witnesses appearing before Senate estimates, publicly released through Freedom of Information. The briefing states that 1,152 private schools will be overfunded to the tune of $3.2 billion over and above their public funding entitlement under the School and Resource Standard. This overfunding contributes to the overall inequity of school funding, which sees more than 98% of private schools funded by the Commonwealth and state and territory governments above the SRS and over 98% of public schools funded below the SRS. The education funding standard agreed to by all Australian governments in 2012. The following comments are attributable to Karina Haythorpe, the Australian Education Union Federation Federal President. We cannot continue to accept the deep inequity in school funding in this country, where private schools are overfunded by billions and public schools are underfunded by billions. It is the public schools that enroll the vast majority of Australian students, and it is public schools that enroll disproportionately higher rates of students with additional needs, students that experience disadvantage and students with disability. If the Commonwealth and state and territory governments can afford to overfund private schools, they can afford to fully fund public schools. If all Australian public schools had 100% of the schooling resource standard, then students from all backgrounds would benefit from smaller class sizes, additional teachers, and more resources. The Albanese government must deliver on their election promise and deliver the pathway to full and fair funding for public schools as soon as possible. Thank you very much, Oliver, for um, that introduction to, to what we think is going on. But I'd like to suggest that our listeners find out what a thing known as the Gini coefficient is. Anybody know what the Gini coefficient is? It's actually a way of evaluating a country's level of inequality. If they get to number one, they are fully equal. If they are zero, they are fully unequal. So it's a not a zero to one. Now, Australia's level of inequality 
or equality, whichever way you want to look at it, thinking that one is perfect equality. We haven't even made 0.5. We are on 0.34 of this international valuation of the OECD called the Gini coefficient. Think about it, 0.34. And we are much considerably less than the Scandinavian countries, which is not surprising, but we are also less than Mongolia and Kazakhstan. So when the dogs say that the levels of inequality in Australia and also the levels of inequality in our education systems are pretty bad, we mean it. And we're not just talking off our hat. We are actually using an international standard. Think about it. We are less equal than Mongolia and Kazakhstan. How do you like that? If listeners would like to check that out, it's G-I-N-I, the Guinea coefficient. It's an international standard. So um, we're, not, we're not just imagining things, and the dogs think time has come to take a stand on all this. The AEU are doing their best, as are the, the public school parents, but the dogs have always called a spade a spade, and we think that... Uh, these are the recommendations that this reference group should take very, very seriously if they even think that they can do something about the levels of inequality in the current system. And Andy's going to tell us what the dogs think. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, the dogs uh, do wish to go further than the AEU, who have not questioned the public funding of a dual system, but only the underfunding of the public system. DOG's recommendation to the reference groups is as follows. Any private school which receives the resource standard in public funding or exceeds that standard should have that funding withdrawn if, one, the school charges fees, two, the school rejects the enrolment of any child in the local area, three, the school discriminates against any employee. In addition, the school's assets should pass into public ownership and control the infrastructure as well as teacher salaries are now publicly funded in many private sector schools. The school's funding should be administered and accounted for by the relevant Department of Education. If the school does not accept these conditions, then its administrators may decide to be registered by the relevant authority, but genuinely independent of public funding. So I guess the next part of the submission now is to actually ask the question, why has Australia reached the current inequitable state of affairs? On 12th of December 1972, the Interim Committee for the Australian Schools Commission was appointed by the Honorary E.G. Whitlam, Prime Minister of Australia. The committee was asked to make recommendations as to the immediate financial needs of schools, priorities within those needs, and appropriate measures to assist in meeting those needs. The needs policy was articulated and the principle of equality defined by the committee as follows. The committee values the principle that the standard of schooling a child receives should not depend on what his parents are able or willing to contribute directly to it, or whether he is enrolled in a government or non-government institution. It believes that if incomes are to continue to be as unequal as they now are, there are good reasons for attempting to compensate through schooling for unequal out-of-school situations in order to ensure that the child's overall condition of upbringing is as free of restriction due to the circumstances of his family as public action through the schools can make it. It was the first time that this objective had been articulated in Australian educational history. In the 19th century, elementary education had been extended to all along with the franchise, but secondary education was for those who could pay or obtain scholarships. In the 20th century, secondary education for all was a matter for keeping up with international developments, but tertiary education always has been and still is for the winners in what has always been an unequal relay race. Forty years later, David Gonski articulated the equality or needs principles even more strikingly, referring to his 2011 Gonski Review of School Funding Report in 2014. He said, we delivered the Gonski Report in December 2011. In it, we set out our recommended funding arrangements for those for whose aim was to produce improved educational outcomes for all Australian students and also to seek to ensure that educational outcomes in Australia were not the result of differences in wealth, income, power or possessions. This last point became our definition of equity 
and it was central to our thinking. All of us on the review panel were very moved by what we saw in the many site visits we made and what we heard from the experts we spoke to. Everything supported existing research, which showed a large gap between Australia's highest and lowest performing students, and also a clear link between low achievement and educational disadvantage, especially among students with low socioeconomic and Indigenous backgrounds. If Carmel and Gonski sincerely believed they could make a difference, they were proved mistaken. The history of equality in Australian education is, amongst other things, the history of the failure of a social democratic post-World War II enterprise to tackle the ever-growing gap between the education of the wealthy privileged classes, the upper 10% or even 1%, and the disadvantaged in the lowest quartile. And I'll now hand over to Sorrel. Thanks, Andy. Uh, the failure. In 1973, the Whitlam government did not control the Senate. Two compromises were made in order to establish the Schools Commission. Commonwealth funding of resource-rich, wealthy schools was continued and the Catholic Church was given block grants to administer. Now, the, to be fair to Carmel, um, they said that there were Class A schools. So they, they, they classified every school in Australia from A to D. And all the Class A schools got really upset because they were going to lose their state aid. So they were reclassified and then the Senate wouldn't pass the Schools Commission. They wouldn't set it up unless they still got money. So it was impossible and it's been impossible ever since 1973 to take a penny away from the wealthy schools. And the Catholic Church has gone along with this because they didn't want the wealthy Protestant schools to fall out with them. So they've all been in it together in, uh, in, in the swill of the public's treasury. Mm. That, I, I, re I remember it, you know, I was there and I remember it very clearly. That's my two pennies worth of those days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great comment. Love to hear from people that were actually there at the time. I think that's good. Um, a consequence was that the system expansion rather than the funding of the poorest schools often occurred. Both of these compromises diminished the potential of the school's commission to support its social justice objectives. In 2010, Gonski confronted similar problems when he was instructed that no school would lose a dollar. And this has been, this has been the history of Australian education. Before you can get any money down to the disadvantaged, you've got to pay off the wealthy. It's, and it's still going on, of course, more and yeah. more, more and more. Definitely. By anyway. 2020, fiscal integrity alongside inequities affecting disadvantaged children in the Australian community have been exposed. By a series of international OECD and UNICEF reports on inequalities and segregation in Australian education. Auditor General reports the National School Resourcing Board Review of Needs-Based Funding, researched by various policy and research groups, reporters in the Fairfax Press and the ABC and the pandemic. A growing body of evidence indicates that the primary educational objective of the private systems of Australia have never been meeting the needs of disadvantaged children in their care. Their aim has been what Malcolm Turnbull in his recent memoir has described as maintaining enrolments in middle-class areas. If this is the case, the non-Catholic denominations and not the major Catholic systems have been the big winners. Carmel's explanation of failure. In 1998, 25 years after his much publicized report, Peter Carmel, an erstwhile economist, was the honored speaker at the ACER conference entitled 1998 Schools in Australia, 1973 to 1998, the 25 years since the Carmel report. Reflecting on these years, he said, the period since Schools in Australia was published has been one of great change. We now live in an economy with a strong market orientation and one which has undergone an information technological transformation. The economic, the economic paradigm has undergone a quantum shift from the ideal of a mixed economy of the post-World War II era to one subject to the principles of economic rationalism. 
This has been accompanied by a decline in the willingness of governments to devote resources to education. He completed his talk with a statement that if Australia wished to raise retention rates to 100% and add a system of entitlement to a quantum of post-school education, then the community will have to be willing to devote more resources to education. The price of this may well be higher taxation. We need to signal to governments that if the price is higher taxation, then so be it. At the same conference, Bob Lingard from the University of Queensland pointed to the simple fact that the problem of injustice in education had not been solved. He said, I am convinced that this is not just a problem for the disadvantaged. Perhaps the greatest weakness of compensatory education was its centrifuging tendency, the way it turned our eyes away from the education of the privileged. I consider that a privileged education is by far the very fact or privilege, a corrupt education. For too long, we have let the privatizers persuade us that there is something admirable about grabbing more resources than your neighbor has. An education designed to select and exclude and to give advantages in this selection and exclusion undermines the moral basis of communication, culture and social life. As Lingard noted, at no point since 1973 have the high fee schools been confronted or lost a dollar of public funding. Nor has any politician successfully confronted either the schools for the wealthy or the use of block public funding with minimal accountability by the major private sector, the Catholic Church. Neither Carmel nor Gonski solved the inequality problem in education. They were unable to make unequally wealthy institutions permitted to select children on economic or any other criteria equally available to all children. Neither of them were permitted by their terms of reference to confront the privileged as well as the disadvantaged. The media in recent years, however, have exposed the shenanigans of the students, teachers and headmasters of a handful of wealthy Australian schools together with an analysis of their asset portfolios. So have a number of 21st century political economists. 21st century political economists. Education systems both reflect and influence social, political and economic development. Carmel, and to a lesser extent, Gonski knew that. But commissions of inquiry have concentrated on education for the poor rather than that of the privileged and the upper one and 10%. In a parallel universe to academic historical inquiry, another literature takes up the challenge of exploring the global history of inequality for the upper one and 10%, attempting to identify forces of leveling or increasing distribution of income and wealth across recorded history. Until recently, this may have been a niche study but since the turn of the century, it has become a subject of intense international study. At least one Australian academic turned policy advisor and politician, Andrew Lee, has taken up this challenge. He asks the question, what drives inequality in Australia in a series of academic articles and in his 2013 Battlers and Billionaires? Lee, who is currently a minister in the Albanese government, was an economics professor at the ANU, not a historian. Yet his books present a socioeconomic interpretation of Australian history. He argues that after more than a century of high inequality from English settlement to World War I, inequality in Australia, as well as many other parts of the world, fell for about half a century. He calls this the Great Compression. But in the past generation, since about 1980, Australia's level of inequality now ranks towards the upper end. This is known as the Great Divergence. A recent OECD comparison finds that Australia has the 19th highest level of inequality amongst 40 nations. South Africa and the Latin American countries tend to be among the most unequal followed by English-speaking nations with the USA leading that group. The most equal of all are the Scandinavian nations. Over to you, Dale. 
Thanks, Sorrel. So Australian economists tracing the history of inequality are part of a much wider global academic movement, including Andrew Lee's collaborator and mentor, the late A.B. Atkinson at Oxford, Thomas Piketty at the School of Economics in Paris, Joseph Stiglitz, the chief economist at the World Bank until January 2000, and Columbia Business School, New York and Harvard, Paul Krugman from City University of New York and columnist at the New York Times, and Robert Gordon, an economic historian from Northwestern University. All of the above writers look into the entrails of their graphs describing the scale of the problem. Talk about the 99% and the billionaire 1% has become entrenched in public debate. They all agree that although inequality was curbed in the decades after World War II, since 1980, it has returned with a vengeance. But they're not sceptics. They argue that unequal societies do not function effectively and their economies are neither stable nor sustainable. The levels of inequality impact the economy, the health of individuals, the cohesiveness of society, and the proper functioning of the polity. They wish to influence policy rather than predict the future. For them, inequality is not, and never was, inevitable. Dogs argue that the reduction of inequality in the society is in part dependent upon a publicly funded public system which is not undermined by a publicly funded divisive denominational system. The current inquiry into the Australian education system will merely continue the descent of Australian education into rising inequalities and decline if it fails to confront the sectarian nature of the religious bureaucracies which have grown fat on public funding have become centralised aggressive lobby groups. They leap into action when favoured funding and expansion of the denominational system is under threat. Their credibility is in decline and the majority of Australian families who are more than happy to send their children to public schools have had enough. The teachers have not only had enough, they, they are walking away. The media have covered the extraordinary greed of the wealthy private sector with gusto, but they failed to cover the shenanigans of the religious school interest in the Dogs High Court case of 1979-1980. In this case, the church school interest argued in a trial of facts lasting 26 days that they were no more religious than state schools. Yet, for more than a century, they had argued that this set them apart from the public system. If, however, they were correct and religious values did not underpin the difference between the sectarian and public system, then why have them at all? Given the effect of sectarian denominational system on the growing inequalities in our society, why provide them with taxpayer funding that enables them to exacerbate religious division and social inequalities while downgrading and, in some cases, depriving communities of a public school? Australia has become an outlier in the international education stakes with its overfunding of the wealthy sectarian sector. This has proved not only divisive and expensive, it has also led to a decline in educational standards on an international level. It's time for the current inquiry to confront real funding issues that prioritise the choice of children for a well-funded public system open to all rather than tolerate the funding of systems which choose children on the basis of class, creed and ability to pay. So that's the dog's submission into the NSRA inquiry. Back to you, Jean. Well, that was quite an academic achievement, wasn't it? And I really do think we have to thank Oliver and Andy and Dale and Sorrel for taking us through that. Now, if you want to uh, find out more about it, you can see it on our website at www.adogs.info. But um, the dogs uh, have been around for some time and we just thought that we should remind people that we know the history of the inequalities uh, in, in Australian education. And back in 1964, we said this was all going to happen, and it's happened, and we don't necessarily like to be right. 
But we thank you for sticking with us. And now we are going to give you a bit of a break. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, listeners, we hope you're still with us. And uh, we're going to go overseas now. It's Jeff's time in the Dogs program. And Jeff's going to take us to the United Kingdom where uh, religious people try to use the public system as um, proselytising institutions and over to America where Trumpism is alive and well in the charter system. But over to Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And with your indulgence, I'm going to take the listeners on a little journey of discovery of why international events regarding public public education are important and how they actually relate to fundamental principles of democracy as uh, as the new world and the old world collide. Uh, the United States and, and Australia were new countries which sought to separate church and state because all the troubles in Europe previous centuries had been caused through religious confrontation. So it was very important to them to separate church and state. With that in mind... Uh, the first article is from the UK, and it's, these are recent articles. This one comes from Jonathan Pierce, is the author, in publishing in Only Sky Media on July 4th. Um, and it's, on, it's the UK state-run Church of England schools plan to double the number of children who are Christian disciples. Um, so the article is, While it might be anathema to many American secularists, State-run schools in the UK, a seemingly more secular country by attitude, are often run by churches or religious organisations. Indeed, some 37% of UK primary schools are faith schools. These can range from schools that only nominally tip their hats to an organising faith tradition to those that adhere very strongly to scripture and a religious moral code. To make matters worse, the the churches and religious organisations contribute virtually nothing to the upkeep of such schools. They're almost entirely funded by taxpayers. Give me a child till he's seven years old and I will show you the man. Whether or not this famous quote originated with St Ignatius Loyola, founder of the Jesuit Brotherhood, its actual provenance is unclear, it reflects a long-standing recognition by religious sects that early immersion in a faith is more likely to take root and endure than later efforts. Childhood is a vortex of determining variables and educational establishments can leave lasting effects on pupils. This is why a recent publication, Our Hope for a Flourishing School System from the Church of England, has left secularists in a cold sweat. C of E at present controls over a quarter of primary schools in England with over a million children in attendance. This is set sharply against the painful reality for the church that weekly attendance at school church services, stands at around 600,000, a mere 1% of the population. The British Attitude Survey has shown that half of British people, 50%, do not regard themselves as belonging to a particular religion, while the largest proportion, 20%, of religious affiliates belong to the Church of England. Nearly two-thirds of those aged 18 to 24 do not belong to a religion, and more than half of those who belong to or were brought up in a religion never attend religious services or meetings. Just 14% attend weekly. We have recently reported on various census findings concerning religion in the UK, detailing a growing trend towards non-religion. In this context, it appears that the CV recognises their predicament and is trying to do something to reverse the trend. The publication details plans for a growing faith foundation, which involves the creation of new models of church in schools, which provide opportunities for children and adults to develop their journey of faith through a well-planned pathways to discipleship. The plan has set a precise target. Courageous structural shifts in thinking and practice involving education will contribute to the church's vision to double the number of children and young people who are active Christian disciples by 2030. The obvious bone of contention here is that the CFE is looking to use taxpayer-funded schools instrumentally in their own evangelising campaign to bolster flagging adherent numbers. A pluralist society is not one that should advocate for using state budgets to promote any given religion or religious organisations over another. Humanists UK have been quick to take aim at the CFE intentions. They say an education system should uphold the values of neutrality, diversity and the promotion of critical thinking, enabling children to make informed decisions about their own beliefs. 
This move by the Church of England not only undermines those principles, but also fails to respect the diversity of faiths and non-religious worldviews within our society. Moreover, their education campaigns manager, Robert Cann, has said in the following in response to the publication, the Church of England's plans to utilise its schools to increase church attendance by converting children is grossly offensive. This behaviour will marginalise those children whose families are not religious or of a different faith. It is imperative that children receive an education that enables them to think critically and make their own choices about their beliefs, rather than being subjected to evangelism. With two-thirds of young people having no religion, it's beyond time for all such religious discrimination to be removed from our school system. Yet here is the Church of England doubling down. The state should make sure all schools are inclusive of all pupils. We will be raising this matter with government ministers. This is certainly a very well-articulated response, he says. And that's, uh, I think, a good article from just a few days ago from England. Now, I'm going to take you to America where the Diana Ravitch blog uh, provides connection to another excellent article. This is by Thomas Utican. It's called Chartered to Doctrinate. Now, this is the American struggle and grappling uh, with a new education report called A Sharp Turn Right, which we've covered in earlier episodes. Um, and Diana Ravitch has noted the several problems associated with chartered schools, profiteering, high closure rates, no accountability. This article is from July 6th, 2023. I'm not going to read the whole article, but I will we'll come down to the sharp turn right focuses on two types, two types of charter schools. One characterises themselves as classical academies and the other touts back to basics. Charter schools in America, by the way, are um, their version of the private schools without noting that they also employ the same classical curriculum. Both provide right-wing clues on their websites, alerting parents of alignment with Christian nationalism. Marketing is often red, white and blue, with pictures of American founding fathers, discussions on patriotism and virtue. Some schools include direct references to religion, like Advantage Academy's claim of educating students in a faith-friendly environment. Sharp Turn Right further clarifies, these schools are distinguished by classical virtuous curriculum, combined with hyper-patriotism for Christian nationalist appeal. They are exemplified by charters that adopt the Hillsdale College 1776 curriculum. Um, Using keyword searches, the uh, Network for Public Education identified 273 active charter schools fitting this description and noted they surely missed more. Nearly 30% of them were for-profit, with about double the rate for charter schools sector in general. Almost 50% of them have opened since Donald Trump was inaugurated president in 2017. Apparently, the school founders want to turn the clock back to 19th century. Uh, STR states, uh, Founders of classical charters view the rejection of modern instructional practices as a selling point. Proponents of classical education vilify the progressive movement, accusing John Dewey and his followers of removing Christian ideals and redesigning schools to achieve social goals. This is them accusing everyone of being woke, of course. It identifies the largest charter school systems indoctrinating students with Christian nationalist ideology and discloses where they are operating. Discussing in some depth Hillsdale College with its Barney charter schools and the large number of new charter affiliates, the port asserts, what they all have in common is teaching Hillsdale's prescriptive 1776 curriculum, which disparages the New Deal and affirmation action while downplaying the effects of slavery. Climate change is not mentioned in the science curriculum. Sixth grade studies include a single reference to global warming. The reality is today's taxpayers are forced to pay for schools teaching a form of Christianity associated with white superiority, politically indoctrinating students with specific rightist orthodoxy. What happened to the principle of separation of church and state? This charter schools for... Uh, indoctrination movement must be stopped before American democracy is sundered. And this article then goes on to the church and state. Uh, It actually has a picture of the Bill of Rights and Article 1 of the Bill of Rights ratified in 1791. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. James Madison proposed the Bill of Rights to codify protections not addressed in the Constitution. 
In the first article, four freedoms are guaranteed. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of peaceable assembly and freedom of religion. In an 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut, Thomas Jefferson explained. He said, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reference, reverence the act, that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Catherine Stewart's deeply researched book, The Good News Club, shares that tensions between Protestants and Catholics became fever-pitched in the 19th century. A student in Boston named Thomas Weil refused to recite the Protestant version of the Ten Commandments and was beaten for 30 minutes. In 1869, the Cincinnati Bible War over classroom Bible use raged in the streets. Stress over religion in school mounted to the point that President Ulysses S. Grant in an 1876 speech counselled Leave the matter of religion to the family altar, the church and the private school, supported entirely by private, private contributions. Keep the church and state forever separate. Clarification of the Establishment Clause came in 1947 Supreme Court decision over a New Jersey school board providing transportation costs for schools run by the Catholic diocese. In Everson versus Board of Education, Justice Hugo Black stated in his majority opinion, the establishment of religion clause of the First Amendment means at least this. Neither a state nor the federal government can set up a church. Neither can pass laws which aid one religion, aid all religions, or prefer one religion over another. Neither can force nor influence a person to go to or remain away from a church against his will or force him to profess a belief or a disbelief in any religion. No person can be punished for entertaining of, a pro of professing religious beliefs or disbeliefs for church attendance or non-attendance. No tax in any amount, large or small, can be levied to support any religious activities or institutions, whatever they may be called and whatever form they may adopt to teach or practice religion. Um, and I won't read the entire article, but it goes on to talk about slowly, under Reagan, uh, the Supreme Court was... Um, in, well, uh, conservative judges continued to be uh, appointed, like Scalia, and later on, until right uh, we find right now, of course, that the Supreme Court in the United States is now dominated by c conservative judges, and that's allowed the uh, intrusion of, of um, people trying to get funding for religious schools in America. And we've covered a little bit of that before. But I wanted to talk about the Establishment Clause because it's very pertinent to what's happened in Australia. And a few of you may know, uh, but if you, have, if you don't know, I suggest you pick up Jean Ely's book, Contempt of Court, and you'll find a, a wonderful explanation of how, indeed, Australia's founding fathers, well, Australia's constitutional uh, committees, founding fathers, they were all men at those, that point, although several of them were campaigning strongly for women's suffrage. People like uh, Andrew Inglis Clark and a fellow by the name of Henry Bourne Higgins, who was a Victorian uh, MP and he was on the Australian Constitution Committee. Now, these Inglis Clark had proposed that we adopt the principles of the American Constitution in that we separate the powers of church and state um, in the Constitution. An establishment clause of our own, which is section 116 of the Australian Constitution, um, Henry Bourne Higgins was able to successfully argue that uh, and got, get, get English Clark's proposal into the Australian Constitution. Now, this case should be, in America, it was 1947 established that, indeed, the, the government, the state, can't fund religious schools or religious institutions. It can't establish them, it can't fund them, because that would be providing a contradiction to the Establishment Clause. When the Establishment Clause in Australia was tested, however, by the Dogs case in 1981, it was found 
that the government could indeed uh, overturn it. it in, in the words of uh, a famous pirate, it was more of a guideline rather than a law and a principle. This is something that um, historian Richard Ely discovered in 1973 when he was flipping through the American Constitution uh, uh, debate uh, papers in the State Library and he just discovered a, an envelope which was you know, identified with the address of Henry Bourne Higgins as he'd been preparing for his speeches back in 1898. So the, he, he definitely referred to the Establishment Clause and the principles, the guiding principles that were expressed by the Americans in their Establishment Clause. Um, unfortunately, the Australian High Court took an, another view and this has allowed the expansion and ever-growing expansion of funding of public private schools by the public purse, something the dogs vehemently opposes and shall continue to oppose. Uh, and I encourage you all, if you can, can get a hold of uh, Jean's book. It's in the State Library. It's Contempt of Court, published in 2010 by the Dissenters Press. Get a hold and read the story of the discovery. It is quite fun. Anyway, with those stories from England where the... Uh, Church of England is actually actively trying to proselytise their students into the church, uh, and the Americans who are trying to defend their own establishment clause, and then we look at our woeful High Court decision that has allowed endless increase of funding for private schools in Australia, and we must understand that we don't exist in a vacuum, that the international um, fight for public education is one that is is uh, ongoing. And so I urge you all to support the dogs, sign up for the dogs and newsletters and check out our website. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, many thanks, Jeff, and we'll have a bit of a break and then we come back for our good news section of our program. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, now's our time for exciting bits. And during the, uh, during the week, there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle about uh, uniforms down in Cheltenham Secondary College. Now, Cheltenham Secondary College is a public school and the people there know, especially the students and the parents know what public education is about. Public education is inclusive. It includes the disadvantaged and the vulnerable groups of our communities. And they wanted to let this know, they wanted the rest of the, the, the uh, community know that they knew about this and they included our Indigenous people and our people who have sexual preferences that are not always acceptable to the rest of the community in their enrolments. So um, we're going to take you to Channel 7, which uh, had a very interesting interview with somebody from the state school system on it. So we'll send you over to a very interesting excerpt from a Channel 7 program. A Melbourne school has sparked outrage among some parents after introducing puffer jackets displaying both the Aboriginal and gay pride flags. Cheltenham Secondary College has been accused of making a political statement with the optional uniform item. But the Victorian Education Department says it was approved by the school's council, which is made up of both parents and students. For more, I'm joined by the CEO of Parents Victoria, Gail McCarty. Morning to you. Uh, can you understand... Morning. Anything about this uproar? Well, look, unfortunately, in the school landscape, there is occasions when there's uproar of much about do about nothing, sadly, um, and that that is not to be offensive to people that are feeling frustrated, but people have to understand the Victorian government schools are autonomous. They have the local decision-making powers in setting school uniform policy and the school uniform provider. And as you explained in your introduction there, the school council did take steps to do all the, you know, to do those, fulfil those obligations. And it's really quite interesting that um, the people that are objecting to, to this are um, really unclear about what they're actually objecting to. 
right, so they're not making that clear. Because parents and students were on the council that chose it. So you'd think that's a representation of the community, is it? Well, Victorian government schools and any school really in the state of Victoria uh, work very hard to be inclusive for everybody. Uh, but, you know, the school, our state schools are legislated and are governed by laws and regulations and ministerial orders. They have a huge role to play in making sure they fulfil all the obligations. And as you could appreciate, not that schools will not please everyone all the time. And, it, you know, there will be people that will have a philosophical point of view on particular things around the curriculum, uniform and a whole range of other issues um, and it's up to parents that are, they have, if they are conscientious objectors they have the parliamentary process and if it's against the Victorian government laws or any of those things they have a local MP they can uh, reach out to, they have the parliamentary process to change laws and more importantly to have a respectful and com uh, communicate with the school itself around their uniform policy if there's something there they don't feel is fair and reasonable. It is our understanding and reading of the policy that it is fair and reasonable. There's, they've covered a lot of things. It's probably one of the mm. best uniform policies I've, I've read um, across the state. Um, you know, I have looked at it with diligence and, um, and I just uh, applaud the school if they have done that consultation with students and were fulfilling the needs of students. But Gail. obviously, for whatever reason... So, is this, is this compulsory, is it? No, the puffer jacket is not a compulsory item. So that's where I think we're all a little bit, a number of us out there in the community are a bit confused why the uproar. You know, you choose to, to purchase it or not or to wear it or not. Um, there, is, there are other alternatives. The school was not intentional to our understanding to be divisive. I think that unfortunately we live in a society today, the world is changing and some of those values and beliefs are not the same as everybody's. And we, as an you know, as an organisation, support parents and schools, ensuring they work better together and have quality relationships and partnerships in the state education. Right. Oh, you could. So there are other jackets for sale. Gail, thank you very much for sharing your views this morning. So wasn't that an interesting and rather a nice story about the inclusiveness of our state school system? And uh, we thought that we'd make Cheltenham Secondary College our great state school. But here's some facts and figures from Sorrel once again. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Cheltenham Secondary College. Cheltenham Secondary College is an inclusive, dynamic and high-achieving college, which is well reflected in the college motto, Health and Learning. Founded in 1959, Cheltenham Secondary College is a single campus year 7 to 12 co-educational college. Current enrolments stand at 900 students and include a cohort of international students, adding to the multicultural nature of the college. Staff, students and parents work together to provide a healthy, supportive and inclusive environment. The students strive to achieve their personal best while developing resilience and celebrating achievements. They offer their students an array of curricular and extracurricular opportunities and career enrichment and well-being programs throughout their secondary school journey. This assists students in making choices that will set them up with a solid foundation for their lives beyond secondary school. Sounds fantastic. Now I have some information for you from the ACARA My School website. They have 883 students currently enrolled and their ICSIA value is 1,052, which is above average, but very representative of the Australian community. 21% of their students have parents that earn an income in the top quartile. 33% of students have parents that earn an income in the second highest quartile. 32% of students have parents that earn an income in the second lowest quartile. 
and 15% of students have parents that earn an income in the lowest quartile. This is a school that is very representative of the Australian community and 44% of their students speak a language other than English and 1% of their students are Indigenous. Some finance information. For recurrent grants from the Australian government, they're getting 2.6 million, 10 million from the Victorian government, 844,000 from fees and parental contributions, 140,000 from other private contributions. Per pupil, it is $15,237. And in capital grants, 613,000 over three years. Their NAPLAN results are above average and more than 50% of their students went on to university. So congratulations, Cheltenham Secondary College. You are our Great State School of the Week. Thank you, Sorrel. And uh, our time is gone, dear listeners. And it's time to say thank you to Dale, our producer, and Andy and Oliver and Sorrel. But from us, it's all bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.